0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier Early and ad-free. Right now, join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: I finally have come to a place where I'm comfortable with being the weirdo that is going to talk about mindfulness and being the person in law enforcement, being the white male in law enforcement that's willing to to talk about the oppression of people of color in the criminal justice system.
0: From ABC... This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. This is not a surprise to anybody, but we live in an era, and I know this because I cover it a lot as a journalist, we live in an era where there are lots of police shootings, particular of unarmed African-American men. We also live in an era where police themselves feel under siege, um, like they're being painted uh with a very broad brush as a result of these videos that have have gone viral, um, even though they're out there risking their lives to protect us. Um, And and one potentially constructive element to be introduced into this highly charged atmosphere is mindfulness. And we've got police departments around the country uh, introducing mindfulness as a way to get their officers to reduce stress and also to make officers who are who are making better decisions in the field who are using mindfulness as a way to combat prejudice and um, unnecessary use of force uh, so we're seeing this in you may have heard a couple of episodes back we talked to uh, Chief Sylvia Moyer of Tempe Arizona which is right outside of Phoenix uh, she's using it with her men and women on her force but it's also they're they're using it in Dallas where uh, as we can, as we all remember, there was that horrible shooting of officers um, not long ago, and uh, our guest this week is a guy named Richard Gerling, who is from Portland, Oregon, and he uh, has introduced mindfulness quite successfully to the force there. And he travels all over the country to teach officers all over the country how to do this. So, um, give him a listen. Uh, however, you feel about this issue, I think he's going to have something to say that will uh, that will pique your interest, Richard Gerling. <laughs>
1: So, how did you come to meditation? Well, you know, I like to answer this question. You know, I think people ask me how long have you been meditating because that's like the that's like the scorecard it seems in in, in the meditation in, world. In the meditation yeah. world, is you know how long have you been meditating? And I like to answer now, you know, all my life because I think that we all intuitively have this meditative capacity as a human being. So I think it's been a part of part of my experience as a human being, but I didn't know what to call it, and I didn't do it formally necessarily until I had formal training in meditations. So that was about 10 years ago. Um, and I got to that through, really through the, the study of stress and resiliency at that time as a police sergeant, um, just recognizing that this job I was in had a lot of negative impacts on the health of the people, myself and the people that I worked with. And so I looked for training tools to help police officers be more resilient and, frankly, to be less unkind. Um, I'm guarding my language because we're on a podcast, but um, we we can— You you, you can use whatever language you want. Great. So to not be assholes, right? And so— Yeah, I think this this police officers often act unintentionally, mostly, kind of like this sort of tough right. And so I I jokingly call this the factor. And so looking for ways that we can relate to people in a way that we're not overly guarded, overly tense, overly directive. And at the end of the day, I looked for how to unpack this police citizen encounter how to improve the performance of the police officer on a, a and sort of on a tactical level so a cognitive decision making how do we make better decisions but also how do we make this experience for the citizen that we're engaged with how to make their experience more productive make them literally feel better and so a lot of the work that we do in law enforcement now is brokering social services so you know we may go to a radio call and, you know, sometimes we think, well, why am I here? Like, I'm I'm a police officer, and I'm not really here to help these people parent their children. But, in fact, you are. You know, that's why we are there, because out of desperation, they call us, we show up, and we're like, hmm, well, I guess I have to deal with this. So managing our own emotion, managing the frustration or the anger or the fear— or whatever it is, uh, th- that takes skill, right? And we can teach those skills. And so, what I found after, frankly, a few years of research, I started with emotional intelligence. I looked at you know Dan Goleman's model and, and became a student of that, and actually trained emotional intelligence, uh, you know, sort of in an academic environment to cops, and realized okay, now they know about emotional intelligence, but they're not building skills in emotional intelligence. How do we take this to the next step? And that's where I found mindfulness. And um, there's a local yoga teacher in Hillsborough, Oregon, where I'm from, where I work. And he also happened to be a mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher. And so I engaged him, partnered with him, and took my first eight-week MBSR class. And that's where it started.
0: So you're you you were – if I am hearing you correctly, which often – I'm not. Mostly out of a complete lack of mindfulness. Um, if I'm hearing you correctly, what brought you to it was a desire to improve
1: police work, not necessarily some sort of personal anguish. Yeah. So, you know, I'd like to say that I don't have a conversion story. I don't have a, oh, my God, my life was so messed up. And, and certainly it has been over points in my life. But it wasn't. I didn't seek mindfulness to sort of remedy anything I was going through. I sought mindfulness to improve my performance in a job that is incredibly complex and difficult that I didn't feel like maybe I was performing at my capacity. And also, because I, at that time, I was supervising relatively young police officers, and I just observed their behavior, and I thought, wow, we're four or five years on the job, and we're acting like we're 15, 20 years on the job with our cynicism and our judgment towards others. And and I really started paying attention to how judgmental we can be. And and I think, Dan, what we do in, in police work is we judge others in order to make sense of the world around us because you're just exposed to so many things that are, like, tragic, you know. And uh, so when you go to that, you get that radio call, and it's a dispute between a parent and their their child, right? And And you're kind of thinking in your head, well these people just simply can't parent their kid. And so now to make sense of this conflict, you you judge the parent like, well, you're a shitty parent. You know, this wouldn't you shouldn't have had kids, right? You know, and then and then it just spirals and gets worse and and the judgment and and you do whatever it is you do on that radio call, you know, maybe you broker some services, maybe you just give bad advice, good advice, I don't know. And you leave, and then later when you're talking with your, you know, Brothers and sisters in blue, it's, it's those kinds of judgments come up and because you want to talk about it. So we talk about those experiences almost therapeutically for ourselves, but we foster a culture of negativity and judgment and cynicism. And it's not – I don't even think we know we're doing it. I think it is a classic stress response, but um, it has really long-term consequences that are not healthy for us and not healthy for how we relate with the community.
0: So did you find after eight weeks that
1: your attitude and performance were changing? Not so much. You know, I found after eight weeks that um, what I felt was that there's something to this that could be helpful. And the MBSR course itself, uh, there was probably about five other police officers that – we all went through an MBSR course on our own time, at our own expense, and then we kind of rallied together and said, okay, what do y'all think? And all of us thought, well, it's helpful. There's something here, but we can't send all these cops to an MBSR course because there's some things in it that just are, are going to make them get up and walk out the door. touchy feeling. Yeah, exactly. And so I didn't have this like, like, wow, this is amazing. My life's different. But I thought, hmm, yeah, this could be helpful. This is interesting. And so we explored over the following few years with our, with our mindfulness teacher, Brant Rogers, and we started creating a, a modified MBSR course. And so we took out some of the more you know, touchy-feely stuff. We added a little more gritty stuff, and we also focused a lot more on, on kind of the movement because cops hurt right you're in this job long enough it doesn't take but a few years with all this gear you're wearing and especially if you're in a radio car you're in and out of the car i mean you know you're you're pretty much screwing your body over every day and then you're sleep deprived and all these other things so we we had realized that we we bring in some of the movement just some of the gentle yoga practices that you know, for that alone cops are like, okay, I'm staying in this course. But then also focusing on the culture piece. So I wrap mindfulness around a a warrior ethos concept. And I know, you know, warriors is not a real popular term right now in law enforcement politically Uh, But that's our fault. It's our fault as police leaders because we've sort of let police culture stray off. But I I think we've created a a model where we can bring mindfulness in, where it meets us in our culture, and it's relevant for our culture. And at the end of the day, I think one of the things that mindfulness trains is that you can be a badass warrior, and and that could be in in news media or policing or whatever profession, but you don't have to be a right? What do you mean by warrior? You know, warrior is a very overused term. In, in the concept of police officer, warrior is somebody who who sort of stands the watch over our public safety, um, our democracy, and when someone's in crisis, somebody who responds. So it's the classic running to the crisis instead of running away from the crisis and then when you're there actually doing something meaningful and useful in a way that doesn't further enhance the crisis that's occurring so n- not creating more harm because of the potential energy that you bring gotcha um and so, so you modified the course yes and what happened then we modified the course and then it took me It took a few years of socializing the neuroscience behind mindfulness, socializing mindfulness with my peers um, and with a key group of leaders inside my police organization in Hillsborough. And I spent a lot of time. I spent hours uh, talking to our SWAT team members. I spent hours talking to our force tactics trainers, to our canine officers, to our school resource officers. And these are key people. These are, these are really what I call the leaders in the organization, the people that are on the ground doing the job that influence change. And, you know, establishing good relationship, establishing sort of the groundwork of, hey, this, this is based in science and the neuroscience of this makes sense. And, and essentially socialize this in a way that allowed us the opportunity to train. And in Hillsboro, the reason we, in t- 2013, the reason we were able to execute uh, three series of uh, mindfulness-based resilience trainings is because we had an incident. One of our police officers off-duty uh, got into a, a domestic violence incident at home and uh, ended up getting into a gunfight with a SWAT team. And it was just a, a crazy, uh, tragic incident. Um, no loss of life, but at the end of the day um you know, This officers, you know, spending 10 years in prison for attempted murder and other charges. So that sort of shook our organization up. And you know, the morale was uh probably as low as I've ever seen it. And we had uh we had a change of leadership at the top. We had an interim chief who a guy named Ron Louis, who had previously been the chief of police there and sort of uh transform the police agency over a period of about 15 years as the chief and he'd always been a mentor and friend of mine and he came in and basically his first day on the job as interim chief he calls me and says okay we're going to get we're going to get the barriers out of your way i want you to do this training so within a week we did So
0: so how did – I'm curious just to step back a little bit and I want to get to how the training goes. But for all these years, you're out there saying, hey, our culture is problematic. Right. We're being jerks. Right. How does that go down
1: with your colleagues? Not well. With some, not well. Um, We know this though, Dan. You know, we know our culture is is a challenge. Um, You know, we we work and, and live in an incredibly toxic environment. And, you know, any, any challenge to the institution of policing is generally met with, with a defensive posture, right? And even internally. And so uh, one of the things I did was I, uh, I became an adjunct instructor at a local community college. And I developed a class where, you know, I, I, called, I called this class initially Effective Police Encounters, and so I, I taught this class to college kids and talked about these things. So there was sort of an outlet for me, like, to, um, to present an alternative perspective on the state of policing. I would occasionally give talks at um, law enforcement conferences, and I've been to a few where I've given talks and been critical. And I learned that the institution doesn't want to hear criticism from the inside. And so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to figure out how to be this change agent and have this contrarian voice internally. And um, I just continued to do it. And I found this relationship with Pacific University. They invited me to be a, an affiliate faculty member. So I have this team with Pacific University that I do most of this work. I don't do this work as a lieutenant of police uh, because there just isn't enough acceptance inside the institution to, to do this. So, I mean, I do some of it, uh, but it's very, very limited. Um, but most of the work that we do, the research and the training that we do, is really done as a, as a professor, adjunct professor at Pacific University. And so that's, that's how I've had to cope, is to step outside and kind of have one foot inside the system and, and one foot outside the system. Gotcha. gotcha. So
0: so, so uh, working with Pacific University, you start running these cohorts through the training, fellow officers in right. 2013. Right. How did that go? You I know, mean, we, They were
1: being studied too, right? They were being studied. You know, it was interesting. So the very first class, uh, I advertised internally, and uh, I had more people than I could bring into one class. I mean, really? so as an indicator, I didn't have to – go and recruit and sort of pull teeth to get people to the dojo. It was it was a uh, dojo hey, dojo. I like to use the term dojo. it's a, sort of this martial arts term uh, of a of a sacred space to train okay right And so um, I had police officers who wanted to be in the first cohort who couldn't be because I had too many people.
0: Is that because they had just gone through this terrifying thing with with your colleagues? In, in part yeah.
1: and, and in part that in part, you know, here's the thing. Police organizations, the leadership of police organizations, and more broadly, the institution will say, understands that stress and trauma is a significant issue. We understand because we see, and we'll talk about the, the, the sort of the, perf, uh, the health metrics of law enforcement officers. But you know, we have a huge problem with, with addiction. We have a huge problem with uh, behavior on duty. Uh, We have a problem with suicide. We have a problem with just health and well-being of our people, you know, on-duty injuries. And and, and then there's the whole performance problem, right? So there's all these issues. And we know it's, it's intuitively even, we know it's connected to the stress and trauma of the job. And we don't do... lot about it i mean i think the most effective training is to teach skills and resiliency so that we can walk through trauma and with some period of adjustment come out the other side as strong as we were when we started or maybe a little stronger and this is the notion of post-traumatic growth and it's the notion of vicarious resilience and science teaches about these things but we're still stuck in the post-traumatic stress disorder which we need to understand and we need to mitigate uh, but we, we send police officers to trainings where they sit for a half day or all day and we talk about hypervigilance and we talk about – we talk about things. And so now they leave the training and go, oh, now I know about stress and I know about hypervigilance and I know about post-traumatic you know, stress disorder. And what, what, what the hell am I supposed to do about this? And so I think what we know about neuroscience is that we can teach skills that allow us to navigate through a traumatic situation – or chronically stressful situation and have an awareness that allows us to perform better, to regulate our emotion, to regulate the stress response, to have our humanity with us. Because one of the first things we jettison is sort of our give a factor. Well, this is serious then you know, I'm, I'm intense now, right? And I'm going to be hypervigilant and step into this situation and, and you know, emotions are, are optional. And, uh, you know, so our training that we do isn't very helpful. And with mindfulness, we're teaching skills. One of the first things we're teaching is, let's talk about emotion. Emotions are actually not optional. And emotions don't signify weakness or strength. Emotions happen because you have a brain. And we have this thing in our brain called the amygdala. And there's lots of other complexities to the neuroscience of emotion. But you will experience emotion whether you desire to or not. So the next question is, how do we regulate that? We don't control them. I don't like to use the term control. I like to use the term regulate. So we teach how to regulate those emotions by first becoming aware of them. And that's a challenge when you have people who are conditioned to ignore their emotion Mm -hmm. or stuff their emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to compartmentalize my emotion and put it in a box over here. Well, okay, but that box is going to, the lid's going to come off that and it's going to be explosive.
0: I have a friend who jokes that he switches between two gears, self-pity and rage. It makes sense, right? I mean,
1: if that's how you're conditioned, yeah. you know, that's good training, right? You know, probably not real productive. But I think a lot of police officers probably have two or three gears as well. And, um, and it's not very helpful, you know, for us. So we're teaching skills in these trainings. And so what I found was that uh, you have this continuum of response, so the anecdotal continuum. And so I've had officers, I had a few officers who maybe after class, two or three left and never came back. And uh, no judgment, no questions. I still don't even know why they they didn't return, and that's okay. Sort of the majority of the officers gave us some pretty positive anecdotal feedback, and then a few officers were like, "This changed my life." And I consistently see those anecdotal that anecdotal feedback in trainings that we do, and it's really remarkable. But the the research data on that on those we did three cohorts in 2013. The research data is amazing. So it's uh, improvements in sleep, improvements in uh, pain management, uh, improvements in empathy, reductions in anger. And there was a number of other metrics there that uh, that were very promising for us to continue doing research.
0: So you're going to do more of this now?
1: Yeah. So we're right now in the middle of a uh, National Institutes of Health-funded study. And we're looking at – and this is the exciting piece, but our data right now, we're not sure we have anything useful. But we're looking at all the health metrics – Um, that are important. We're we're testing uh, salivary cortisol and we're testing some other self-reported psychological uh, metrics, but we're looking at- uh, So just to jump in, salivary cortisol is is a stress hormone and
0: you find it in your spit.
1: Right, exactly. So yeah, we had officers spit in tubes for us, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, before the the training, right after the training, and then eight weeks later. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. And the other thing we're looking at is- Bias and cognitive bias. So, yes,
0: this is the issue that people are talking
1: about. Absolutely. So, I believe, based on the research that's out there, as do my colleagues, that mindfulness is the path to really get into implicit bias and policing. And, you know, if we don't vilify our, our actors, whether it's the police officers or our community members, and we really look at the science of bias, and I think that we will find that mindfulness is a training pathway for law enforcement for for us to become aware of bias. And once we become aware of it, then we can begin to mitigate it through a variety of, of mechanisms, uh, maybe the first of which is is the awareness and compassion that mindfulness teaches us.
0: So to just put the fine point on this, we have, as you know, um, had this rash of shootings of unarmed black men by right. police officers, many right. of them white. Um, and the one of the theories is that uh, that implicit bias that that cops see uh, uh, black male and uh, are in j- just subconsciously tell themselves a bunch of stories about how this is probably maybe a dangerous person and therefore they're more likely to shoot that person. So you think meditation is the way one possible way to mitigating co- uh, cognitive bias, implicit bias? Yes. And, and you think the evidence is
1: there to suggest that it, it, it could actually work? I do. You know, there's so far there's no research in law enforcement with police officers and bias. Uh, this study we're in now is, I think, the first research for police officers' mindfulness and bias. And unfortunately, the, the tests that are available aren't very good. Mm. So we don't even really know? Right. So I think this study that we're doing now is going to tell us n- – it's probably not, and we're analyzing our data, but it's probably not going to tell us, oh, this is a definitive, yes, this, this impacts implicit bias. But I think it'll tell us whether or not there's feasibility in it, in the next study. And so we've, we've planned our next study and we're going to make some modifications to how we test bias with police officers and mindfulness. And, and we're looking at, you know, there's, there's, of course, there's the, you know, implicit bias testing that, that exists out there. And we use that IAT, um, we're also looking at how uh, a decision-based bias testing. So we're looking at how to design, um, whether it's a force response test or some other kind of decision-based force test. Force response test, like will you use like, force like, in this like, situation? Right, yeah. uh, you know, a classic shoot, no shoot kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, and so there is something out there called a shooter bias task, which was designed, I think, up in Michigan uh, at the university there, uh, that was used with college students and um, – It's great with college students, but when you move into highly trained police officers who see the nuances in these tests and kind of call, like, well, this isn't going to work. And I I first looked at the shooter bias task with my research team before we started this and said, this isn't going to work. It was a it was a shoot, no shoot, you know, show you a picture of somebody with with something in their hand, you know, and if it's a weapon. It's shoot. If it's not a weapon, it's no shoot. And I said, this doesn't jive. This is this is not a realistic test. So we can't do it. So we changed it to the question was not shoot, no shoot. The question was armed, unarmed. You know, so you're making one simple judgment of is this person armed or is this person unarmed? And they flash these photos very fast, very rapidly. Right. But the police officers, what we're finding and what we believe is they're so well trained. They're answering these questions very easily, you know. And one dimensionally, you can't you can't give a one dimensional photo or, or a set of circumstances to a police officer and say, "Would you shoot?" Because like, they start asking questions. Well, tell me more about the situation. Yeah. You know, and so um, it just shows how well trained police officers are. So we have to change our testing to meet them at their level of training and and really raise the game in in testing cognitive bias. And so we don't. You haven't come up with it yet. We're working on it. You're
0: working on that. Yeah. I mean, it's not just shoot, don't shoot. It's also like, do you stop that car because you think the driver looks suspicious? Correct. Do you Correct. stop a kid on the street and frisk him because of his pigmentation? You know, all of these. Correct.
1: Issues. Well, and you know, I think Dan, it's um, it, it, and then and then let's let's grow that that beyond because it's there's so many system forces that create uh, the directives, whether they're cultural or organizational, for police officers to take enforcement action so for example in agencies across the nation uh, generally there is pressure to uh, write traffic citations there's pressure to take people to jail and so, so you meet your quotas or whatever well I wouldn't I wouldn't even use the term quota that's kind of an old-school term that that isn't helpful in the conversation uh, at least this conversation but I think that um, you know a, a young cop coming on on the job wants to perform well right? And so uh, what are the performance metrics? What yeah, are the yeah, performance yeah. metrics? And, and I think if you look at the system of policing and you look at the criminal justice system more broadly, uh, we really just have to acknowledge the, the legacy racism that exists in the system. And not that, you oh, know, what about the whole country? <clears throat> well, fair enough. Yeah. And so all of these forces influence how I behave as a police officer. Right. And so I think what happens is we want to focus on the individual actor. Well, yeah, we need to be held accountable for sure. We also need to be supported. Yet, really, we really need to open up our lens to a macro or you know a strategic view, and and pay attention to well, what are the social and cultural forces that are that are creating the tactical behavior of of our police officers? And I think that's that's the a broader question. And when we start training mindfulness to police officers. Maybe one of the things we're doing is allowing them to sort of take back the ownership of who they are as a professional law enforcement officer and give them a little more autonomy and control over how they do their job.
0: As opposed to being one tiny cog in a giant wheel that has a lot of... racism shot through in it. Absolutely. I mean, you're right, I think, just based on the numbers that I've seen, but I can't recall offhand, but, you know, prosecution rates and jail, uh, you know, sentence lengths and all of that stuff, uh, likelihood to get uh, qualified counsel, et cetera, et cetera, all of it. For minority communities, they're just on the wrong side of those numbers every, almost every single time. From what I've seen, and again, I'm, I want to issue the caveat that I haven't looked at the numbers in the last five minutes, but I've covered the criminal justice system for a while. It's not a system that redounds to the benefit overall of minority communities, um, uh, by which I mean that they're often disproportionately punished. Um Therefore, I guess my question for you is how much can meditation with cops really do given the
1: scope of the overall problem? No, it's an excellent question, Dan. And and um, the power of the individual should not be underestimated, even in a system that has a lot of challenges and systemic racism and other issues that uh, – that create those social and cultural forces uh, towards behavior, maybe that we would like to change. So mindfulness changes how the police officer is aware of themselves. It changes how they manage and lead themselves, and so it opens up, I think, an awareness and a compassion that radically shifts how they show up. So it it changes the energy of the encounter. So in other words, I can show up as a stressed out, suffering. And I'm going to have an encounter that is authoritative. Or I can show up as a well regulated, compassionate, yet still capable of turning on a badass at any time I need to, police officer that is chill and that has an energy that isn't threatening to people in crisis and that isn't judgmental and is, you know, is this um, fierce compassion that you know, our Buddhist friends like to talk about that is so uh, remarkable. And, and, and so we can begin to change how we show up. And if we do that, you know, one police officer here, five police officers here, and, and soon that begins to infect the attitudes and the energy of a, a, of a team and then of a culture, and then of the organization, and then, you know, and it grows. So it really does make a difference. And so I think there's a lot of efforts uh, nationally, politically, to, to, and they're good efforts to, to change law enforcement. But I think we also, to be effective, we need to change grassroots bottom-up, and then as we're changing top-down, and maybe we'll meet somewhere in the middle And see which is more effective. But if you want to change police officers' attitude, culture, and behavior, you have to get to them. And we have to provide skills training that mitigates the the deeply negative impact of the trauma of this profession.
0: This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. You, uh, It's funny listening to you because you talk with compassion about hmm, the situation that police officers in which they find themselves, but at times also, and I think there's probably a way for you to connect with your audience. You, you're you pretty Tough on officers, you use the a word a few times. I can't. Right. You you can swear. Yeah. I can't because yeah. yeah. I work for Disney. But but isn't it, isn't it the case though that I mean I, I again this is not an area where I have numbers. It's just my intuition, having spent the time with police officers professionally. Most of these people don't go into the job to pick on minority communities. Uh, they they do in the go into the job it's a low paid, dangerous job because they think they're going to do something good in the world.
1: Absolutely, no, absolutely. So so let's let's explore that. So uh, a person joins a police organization, I think exactly, to be a part of something greater than themselves, to do good, right? And I like to say they have a heart for social justice. And, and they, they get on board, and their first exposure to culture is the academy. And, you know, so you go to the academy, and that's when you start, generally speaking, that's when you start learning the culture – and in some police academies across the nation, uh, there's there's remarkable cultures that are that are healthy. In many, it's that's when you first begin learning the us versus them culture, and then then you spend time in field training, um, you get coached, uh, you know, by other officers, and you learn the skills to do, do the job. And you do the job, and, and maybe you know, three or four years later, um, you're still stoked, you're still excited about the job, you know, you're enthusiastic because the Chronic and acute stressors and trauma, the job, haven't really caught up with your with your body yet. But it, it may take a few years, but what we see is between years well, seven and ten, we start to see issues in um, behavior and burnout. And um, that's when we see the, um, you know, you see these young, fit, People, these men and women, and that's when they start, you know, gaining weight, and, and they start, you know, having health issues. You see injuries. You see all these things that um, are symptoms of something going on, and you also start to see cynicism, and um, you know this um, dualistic thinking of, you know, if you're if you're a police officer. Uh, there's people out there that are out there to get you, and there's no question that this is a dangerous job, and there are people that that are foes. Um, we can't paint everybody as, as as a as a foe out there in the field, uh, and and I think sometimes our default is to do that because it's just simply easier and uh, maybe safer for well, you. Well, you know, it, it may be, but here's what's interesting though. Um, there was a study done in Savannah, Georgia, so uh, Jeff Alpert's a professor at University of South Carolina in Columbia, and in 2008, he published this study, and it was a study on police officer demeanor. And so he sent a bunch of grad students out in Savannah and they, with their clipboards and they rode with police officers and they took these metrics down. And to oversimplify his study, and I hope he's okay with this basically, in, intuitively, uh, you know in law enforcement, we've always known that in a police officer citizen encounter, if the citizen has an attitude, you know, if, if they if they are uh, if they're offensive, if they're non cooperative, if they just have an attitude, let's say they're an asshole, right? Then we uh, we know well, you know, we're more inclined to take enforcement action because we have discretion because of this person's attitude, right? Well, Jeff looked at the officer's attitude, so the police officer's demeanor and how did that impact this study and. um, and again, to oversimplify the outcome, uh, it was it was beautiful because it, it, he he basically found data from his research that that reinforces what we know. And That is, if I show up as the if I show up with the attitude, with the authoritative approach to this, then what we see is a is a greater incidence of force response, a greater incidence of enforcement. Period. So, because what happens is you know, and, and maybe this is uh, getting into the neuroscience of of People's emotional energy, but if I show up as kind of an ass, the person I'm dealing with is probably going to amp up, right, right, and, and pretty right, soon we're in this sort of like so attitude war. So it's not safer for you. It may not be. Yeah. It may not be. Yeah. And I think that it's also not safer in the long run because if 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 we you know if we think there's a a bad guy behind every every uh, you know vehicle. A stop and there may be and that's a whole that's a whole another incredibly unsafe arena as vehicle stops i should probably not talk about that one right now but if everybody is a bad a bad guy so to speak um then first of all i mean we can't sustain that sort of um hyper vigilance in our system right being dumped with cortisol like that over time and this is what we see you know we see uh increased risk of cardiovascular disease, we see obesity, we see uh, type 2 diabetes, um, the, the risk of sudden cardiac death for police, for police officers is uh, it's ridiculously high. Uh, all of these things that we see um, as a result of this attitude, right? So maybe in that moment, in, in, in a few tactical situations, it may be safer. But what we try to train with, with mindfulness is that we're not giving up our tactical safety with compassion we're actually improving it because I submit to the police officers that I train that awareness and compassion are the gateway to performance and I believe that because I think what happens Dan is that if I have this awareness of myself I'm improving my situational awareness around me and if I'm not have if I don't have all this unregulated emotion and stress and things going on in my body and my person and my in in my being then I'm more aware of you And I'm reading you better. And all this data that my brain's taking in, I can assess more effectively. Therefore, I can make cognitive decisions more effectively because I'm not clouded. I'm not in this fog of war because of stress. So I would submit that compassion and awareness help me to perform better. Therefore, I'm safer.
0: So I'm inclined to think there's, just based on what you've said, that there's really maybe something to the idea of taking mindfulness to police officers. I say that without having seen all of the evidence, so I can't say anything definitive. But it seems promising to me, with the caveat that I'm biased toward meditation. Sure. Um, however, you are right outside Portland, Oregon, one of the most liberal cities uh, in the universe. Um, and I'm wonder- wondering, like, how would this go down in... Uh, the Bronx, how would it go down in Huntsville, Alabama? How would this go
1: down in Dallas? Well, I will tell you this. um, I had the privilege of visiting Cambridge, Massachusetts, Police Department earlier this year. Also, the the most liberal place. People's Republic (laughs) of Cambridge. So I look for the liberal spots. (laughs) Um, You know, it's... um, Well, let, let me just talk about some of the work that I do. So, you know, I talked about Pacific University... Uh, I talked about the work I, I did early on at, at Hillsborough Police Department. So I started something called the Mindful Badge Initiative, and and through that, uh, I went through UCLA's um, training program last year. So I got myself credibly, uh, you know, trained so I can go out and actually train with some with some integrity. And so since then, um, I've done some work. So I've designed a. Uh, I'll back up a bit. The The eight-week training is a wonderful training model for research. It's not so much a good training model for for logistics for police agencies. So let me just say, the yeah.
0: a- MBSR, MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which is this eight-week yes. program, which has been, it's very handy because it's an eight-week standardized program and you can replicate it and therefore scientists can study it all over the place. But you're now saying that eight weeks isn't super useful for what you're trying to do.
1: It's it's great for for research with yeah. police officers. Yeah. Where it's not so great, it is so difficult to go into a police agency and say, "Hey, I want to do eight weeks of training. I want to take twenty five police officers and put them in this cohort, and we're going to train once a week for two and a half hours. And maybe week seven, we'll do this six eight hour training." And you know, the, the wheels start spinning, and they're like, "Well, that's great, but how does this work again?" And interestingly enough, it's really difficult to get those. 25 police officers consistently showing up for one because it's, of the nature of the shifts it, The yeah. nature of the shifts so yeah. operationally it's really really difficult and there's so many things that get in the way so you're essentially instead of saying hey i want you to come to one training opportunity i want you to come to eight training opportunities and so there's there's eight times the the obstacles and the buy-in doesn't really happen until week four or five mm. and so a lot of times we see police officers really struggle to even show up week two, three, and four. So what I found is doing some kind of an intensive immersion training on the front end is incredibly helpful. So uh, I developed with some training partners a two and a half day immersion training. And um, in Bend, Oregon, we do this in a residential environment. So in January of this year, we did a two and a half day residential. We had like about 27 police officers show up on a Friday evening. We spent four hours on a Friday evening training And, you know, they hit the rack and we're up at 730 and we're meditating first thing in the morning. Then we have breakfast and it's a long, long day on that on that Saturday. And then Sunday, it's another um, eight, nine hour day. And that exposure is really, really helpful. And what I find anecdotally from that is that, you know, police officers tell us that, uh, oh, I understand how this is helpful. And so it's a good starting point. And so that model is has been pretty uh, productive. Uh also I've done you know day long trainings. I've done that same model in a non-residential format because it's difficult to do a residential cuz the costs go up and it gets really challenging for police agencies to afford training cuz they're not their funding models don't support mindfulness training as you can imagine. But I think that, you know, what we're looking at now for this next study at Pacific University is we're looking at a way to combine an initial, maybe a day-long immersion or or a weekend immersion and then a six-, eight-week ongoing training. But to get that buy-in first and sort of sink those skills in and then to train over a period of time. I do think the duration, you know, eight weeks and – uh, I'm sure there's all kinds of reasons that John Kabat-Zinn chose eight weeks, but it, it really gels with sort of the science about creating new habits, and it really makes a lot of sense, and I like, I like having the duration of that formalized training, and we don't want to lose that. But we just want to have some more buy-in on the front end.
0: But so, so do you think this will work outside of Cambridge and Bend and, uh, and, yeah, and so, Portland?
1: Yeah, I do. So I've also trained down in California, and uh, the California Chiefs of Police organization is very interested in, in mindfulness and its potential. Uh, Sylvia Moyer was a chief of El Cerrito Police Department until earlier this year. She retired, and she went to Tempe, Arizona as the chief. But Sylvia pioneered – Uh, Mindfulness getting started in California, and she brought myself and another trainer in, and we spent we did a weekend training there, and it was really helpful. And then uh, and now we have some other chiefs in the Bay Area that are interested in doing this. So I think, and it's the Bay Area, yeah, (laughs) I get it, Dan, I get it. Um, But but it has to start there, and then and then I think the conversations can shift. You know, you you talk about uh, NYPD. Um, One thing that I recognize is that I'm I'm a West Coast police officer and i am not going to walk into the house of a place like nypd and pretend to tell them that i know anything now there's a way to build relationships and there's a way to introduce things and there's a way to build trust so that you know maybe maybe there's a handful of you know nypd officers that would want to train and we could try it i, I think that is feasible for sure but it's not it's not like you know um I would say to the leadership of NYPD that oh you you know this is this is you need to you should I do not like to use should and need statements I listen to myself this is my awareness you know and I, I think that um, there there's a lot of conversation to be had and I think any mindfulness training has to be carefully crafted to meet the culture of the organization and the expectations of the community. And that's different in New York, and it's different in different parts of New York, right? Absolutely. And so, and that's you know, it's different in Atlanta, um, in Portland, in San Francisco, and, and everywhere. But I do think that there are places where mindfulness is beginning to be part of the conversation, and even part of the training. You know, I have a, a friend Brian Shires who's training um, Los Angeles Police Department. In, in really tiny doses, but he's beginning to introduce them to mindfulness. And Brian's one of my training partners, and we do these immersion trainings together. So I think we're starting to get, you know, police officers are open, I believe in, in my experience, to training that will help them perform better and and feel better. And that's, that's the bottom line.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, um, I'm going to share your optimism because why not? Um, let me ask about you personally. So you've been doing this for 10 years. What's your daily practice look like, and how is it changing how you show up
1: uh, when you get a radio call when you or uh, when you got to do a traffic stop? Yeah, you know, so r- right now, uh, professionally, I am in our investigations <laughs> division. So I-, I left our patrol division about a year and a half ago, so I- I'm not out in the field anymore. Um, but I will tell you this, is that my, my practice is... Um, is fluid and varied. Um, You know, there are times when I go through periods where I sit daily for short periods of time. I'm not a, you know, 30-minute meditation, uh, daily meditation guy. I think sometimes it's 10 minutes, sometimes it's 15 minutes. And then... Other times, just depending on what's going on in my world, um, my practice is fluid. So it's part of the rhythm of what I do. It might be uh, I'm going to close the door to my office and I'm going to sit here for a few minutes. It might be an intentional walking meditation. It might be um, I, I swim regularly. So it's sometimes my practice is just in the water. And so I find it where I can and um, and that's that's the reality of uh, you know I think the lives we live and I imagine you know you might have a similar uh, explanation of how you practice. Well, it's a great
0: model for people because I uh, one of the things that we you know I have this company that, uh, that teaches people how to meditate through an yeah. app, ten percent happier available on iTunes. Um, that that uh, you know we find that one of the big fears we've identified for secret fears that either stop you from meditating or screw up your practice and, and one of them is time. Yes. And so to hear somebody like you who's got a training in this, who trains other people to do it, and you're like, eh, you know, sometimes I sit and do it formally for 15 minutes. Other times it's just like catch, one ca- catch as catch can, and I, I think that's empowering to people.
1: And I hope it is because it 's realistic you know and and I think you know you get into these uh, in these communities in the mindfulness community and other communities, I think there becomes these sort of this social pressure to to perform right yeah. it 's like well, you must yeah. be doing this way and yeah. I, I have a very good friend who's like you know well you 've got to sit for thirty minutes every day, and so we had this long conversation, and at the end of the conversation he understand he's never going to say that to me again because yeah. it ends yeah. up in these long yeah. conversations that are kind of unpleasant. Yeah. But 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 again it's this classic judgment, you know, well are we judging ourselves for I mean this and I've I've heard you talk about this and it's so right on. It's like, well sometimes we're so worried about how do how do we do this right that we're not even doing it. Yeah. You know, and yeah, yeah, and so yeah. but 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 I, it comes back to maybe what I said earlier and I think that so much of what we have called mindfulness is just the intuitive human experience and it's just being awake to it. And so I think we can walk through our life awake to that and augment that with a daily practice, you know, a few times a week practice or, or whatever. And and I do think that, you know, I find that um, formal intensive practices are very important for me. And it might just be once a year, you know, it might be a five day retreat once a year. It might, you know, it might be a, a weekend retreat, you know, once a year. But I seek those out because those are life-saving. And then sort of the race in between those is the race in between those. And it looks like what it needs to look like.
0: So how has it changed you on the job? How has it changed you? I just met your lovely wife before I walked in here. Like, So after 10 years, are you a different guy or were you always
1: awesome? (laughs) No, not always awesome, that's for sure. Um, I think I am an evolved person. And I don't think I'm a different person, but I think, uh, you know, living life is about the evolution of who we are as people. I think I'm a lot more aware of myself. I think I'm a lot more aware of people around me. Um, I I think that I am more compassionate towards others. Uh, It doesn't mean I I don't have this sense of accountability. I mean, you know, um, I'm not, well, everybody can do whatever they want. No, that's not true. But I'm compassionate when when I uh, bump up against people's suffering. And, you know, it's if people, you know, this is so petty, but this is the world we live in. You know, if I go to uh, if I go to the coffee shop and the, and the barista behind the counter is is unpleasant instead of being like, well, damn, did you, you know, what a jerk. Right. I think, yeah, that person is probably having a really difficult time in their life. And I'm not going to meet that with my uh, my own unpleasantness. I'm going to be kind and maybe I'm going to actually tip a little more. Because, you know, maybe this is a single parent trying to survive and and this is their third job. And, you know, why do I have this expectation that this should be nice to me? Because who the hell am I, right? So I think that changes how I encounter other people. Um, So it it changes how I parent. I mean, it's, um, God, you know, parenting is this this, this journey of realizing just how much work you have to do (laughs) Mm -hmm. on your own self, right? It's like, you know, just... Um, and, and this accountability to raise these people into productive human beings. And, um, but, you know, I mean, it's changed how I parent, uh, my, my own awareness of decisions I make. And then, you know, I, I, have, uh, I have two daughters and I find myself saying I'm sorry a lot, you know, um, because maybe I'm too quick to have an answer or, or whatever, Right. But, um, so it definitely has changed who I am. It changes how I see the world, and you know what's interesting, Dan, is that this this journey I'm on as a change agent in policing it is not one that i I chose it's and that might sound sort of strange, but I mean, I came to this realization that it chose me, and it's it's been i think the most difficult path in my life and uh and I've had a lot of challenging paths in my life. And, and I finally have come to a place where I'm comfortable with being the weirdo that is going to talk about mindfulness and and being the person in law enforcement being the white male in law enforcement that's willing to to talk about the oppression of people of color in the criminal justice system that's not my opinion that's my realization and you know so having those kinds of conversations and speaking publicly about those kinds of things, I guess you'd say that I'm a radically different person than I was when I was a naive young police officer 20 years ago.
0: Uh, It's interesting because I bet you get it from both sides. You and I yesterday were at a a conference, social justice conference, and there were a lot of people in the room who've had deeply negative encounters with police, so are going to view you uh, maybe with some suspicion. On the other hand, you exist within the police uh, infrastructure and as you said before, you're the weirdo who's talking about mindfulness. So it's like you, you, it's hard for you to find a home, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, that's pretty accurate. And, you know, I think uh, some of that is, yeah, yeah, you know, it's really, it's really a difficult place. I mean, the, the, I, I am clearly not well established in uh, in the, in the uh, what we might call the traditional good old boy network of law enforcement. And I'm not, fully accepted, I think, you know, by the police reform community. And I don't need to be either. I think, you know, I I see a lot of my path as a bridge and not as the only bridge, but as a bridge to bring communities together. And whether it's academia, who's going to look at this as objectively as we know how, whether it's law enforcement leadership or the frontline personnel, which really I think are the best leaders in law enforcement, or whether it's the, the community activists and, and I think that if I can stand in the, in the overlap of all of these communities and I can create conversation and build relationships, then that's very helpful. And that is a very lonely place to be. There's no question. Um, but that is my path. And I have to honor this role that I play.
0: I'll make a prediction before we close. It's not going to be lonely forever. I suspect that you'll have more and more allies as this thing becomes more and more socially acceptable.
1: Where can people learn more about you? Well, I have a, a website, mindfulbadge.com, and uh, yeah, I think that's the that's the starting point. Thank you okay, very that much does for it for another on. edition Thank of you, the really Ten Percent Happier it. Podcast. If you Thanks liked it, work.
0: please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohen, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
2: Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. music field weekly party, where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history.